You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Recently, I came across a horrifying video of a man who was being mauled by a tiger. Now, this wasn't in the wild. It it wasn't on a safari gone terribly wrong. It was in a zoo. And after hours, cleaning crew had an employee that climbed over a safety fence in the evening and then began to feed the lion through another fence where the lion was being held. A tiger that I'm sure seemed docile, I'm sure it seemed beautiful and and pretty and just like a, a regular cat that you could feed. But underneath that docility was a ferocious hostility that led to this tiger grabbing and clamping down on this man's arm and trying to maul him and pull him through the fence. This man's screams were heard and finally They had to shoot the tiger to get it to let go of the man. And the reason that I tell you this nightmarish event is to point out that hostility in this world is not often seen until it's too late. That everything looks very docile until the hostility comes out and it's too late. The world is not always as it seems to us when we're walking through it. And we often view the world as a very safe and docile place, just waiting to be enjoyed if we can find the places to do that. And it's actually a hostile place inviting you to voluntarily be destroyed. What I'm talking about is the system of the world, the underlying plans that the enemy has for all who would choose to ignore and cross over the safe boundaries that God has put in place for our protection. We don't have to look very far to see rising hostilities between all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons, some extremely petty. Hostility often boils just below the surface, waiting to explode and bring destruction to everything around it. Currently, there's rising hostility as we look in the news between Ukraine and Russia. There's hostility between truckers in Canada and their government. There's hostility between people that got vaccinated and people that, that didn't. There's hostility between people that wear masks and people that don't. People that have different skin colors. People that have different voting patterns. People that have different economic statuses that live in different regions of the nation. People that live in different regions of a state, or watch this, people that live in different regions of even a county. We can find all kinds of reasons to have hostility towards one another. It could even be sports team allegiances. Just read this week as well, after the Rams and 49ers game, that there was a fight that broke out between different teams, right? Different jerseys being worn until one man got punched in the face and is in a coma right now over a football game hostility and it doesn't matter what it is 
We usually start as humans from a place of suspicion, mistrust that leads to hostility. Instead of being docile, we're oftentimes hostile, and that is typically our baseline for response. Hostile means unfriendly, marked by malevolence, which leads to an aggressive attitude towards someone or something. And what I want you to understand is that is the type of attitude that the enemy has towards you and the gospel. It's an underlying hostility that on the outside looks like a lion or a tiger that that might be petted, but it's waiting and seeking whom he can devour. Christians living in a world full of hostility is something that we're called to do, but what are we to do? How are we to respond? What should our response be? Do we look and act any different from the world around us that Jesus sent us into? Are we just as hostile to those who are different or have differing ideas or views than us? Or do we run and hide and hope that Jesus comes back soon? We're in the final week of our series, Abide, where we're looking at what it means to abide in the Word of God. Carla did a phenomenal job last week talking about and teaching us how to abide in the vine, that Jesus is the true vine, and our desperate need as branches is to abide in him, that we can do nothing apart from him. Today, we're going to look at our text in John 17, and it's the prayerful culmination of all that Jesus had been telling his disciples up to this point, and it was also the end of his time teaching them. As I was thinking about that and reading that this week, it it actually made me sad. Just like I'm sure that it made Jesus sad in that moment or any of the disciples that were just maybe a little bit aware of what's going on. This is the last time that I'm going to teach you face to face. Like they had been walking with him, teacher, rabbi. This is the last time they were going to be with him in the flesh and he was going to be teaching them. I believe this is why this section of scripture known as the high priestly prayer, or maybe better put, Christ's prayer for the church, is where it is as Jesus cries out to the Father on behalf of his disciples both then and and now, if you, God, would please protect them. And we're going to talk about that today as we look at this prayer of Jesus crying out for us and for them. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 17. As we thank God for his word today and look at starting in verse 6. But before we read that, I want to give a little bit of context. Because here in John's gospel, the central component of Jesus' final prayers that are recorded happen before the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying in front of all of the disciples. Unlike the other three accounts where there's the prayer in the garden, right? And it's just the three disciples, Peter, James, and John that are with Jesus. In this particular case, he's praying this prayer. And from what we know, everybody, all the disciples are there hearing this prayer. So in this case, it's kind of one of these teaching prayers, delivering doctrine along with Jesus' heartfelt cries. It's what we call preach praying, right? It's when the pastor, not me, but when Pastor Keevan gets to the end of a message and he starts praying and then he preaches another message through his prayer, right? We don't ever do that. It's like, man, I thought he was done. Now he's just preached a whole other message in his prayer. You got to watch out for those pastors. 
And that's what we see. But also there's a central theme throughout the gospel of John that is drawn out particularly right here in this prayer of Jesus. And it's the contrast between the world and Christ. And then also on top of that, the contrast between the world and Christ's followers, his disciples. It's a theme that has already been introduced in chapter 1 that we talked about a few weeks ago where it says that Jesus was the word and he came into the world, but the world did not recognize its own creator. In chapter 17, this contrast is brought to a head in the prayer that Jesus makes for his disciples who are not of the world, just as he is not of the world. Another theme of the Gospel of John is love and unity, and it's featured significantly not just in the book of John, but in this prayer of Jesus' prayer for the church. Christ desires the same unity in love between him and the Father to be present between him and his disciples. You can see this in the prayer, that this unity of of love is presented as a central desire of the heart of Christ. And it is also a necessary requirement for the sanctification of the church. That if we're going to be holy as he is holy, then we are going to love one another as Christ and the Father love one another. That the unity he's praying for, right? He's praying for unity. He's praying for glory. And he's praying for protection. Now, just in case you get offended or frustrated that your prayers aren't always answered immediately, let me show you, Jesus, what happened to his prayer. What is he praying for? He's praying for unity. He's praying for glory, and he's praying for protection. But in the subsequent chapters, we see the contrast between Jesus' prayers and the reality of the world as the world will divide rather than unite, will humiliate the Savior rather than glorify, and will destroy rather than protect. Let's read, starting in verse 6, John chapter 17. I have revealed to you, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled, referring to Judas. I am coming to you now, but I will say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and me and I am in you, 
May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Lord, we pray that you would bless your word today. Change us from the inside out because of it. See, Jesus just before he faced the ultimate hostility, was praying for his disciples both then and now. And it is in this prayer that we're able to see how we can remain faithful in a world that is hostile. That's the the title of this morning's message, if you will. The word, word protects us from evil. If we abide in the word, we can remain faithful to Christ even in the midst of the greatest hostilities that will come our way. And I believe that we're going to see that today through the Father's words. This is what we see, that he sanctifies us and he sends us. He sanctifies us from evil and sends us into mission. That's what the word of the Father does. And it's on this mission, just like our Savior Jesus, whose footsteps we follow in, that we will face hostility, both overt and subversive, both obvious and not so obvious. Things that are obviously hostile and things that seem docile but are just waiting to pull you in. So how do we persevere? How do we remain faithful to Christ? And I think Jesus' high priestly prayer or Christ's prayer for the church teaches us a few things. But I want to give you three key principles that guide us as believers in this hostile world as it relates to the word of God. Number one, when we are rejected by the world, the word of God is our only sure source of strength. And let me remind you, I'll say this again, when I'm talking about the world, what we have seen throughout this gospel, the world is not a place on a map, but a spiritual domain, an atmosphere of darkness and unbelief. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. It's not a person that I'm at battle with. It's against the principalities and the dark forces in this evil age. So that is the system, that is the world that is hostile towards the gospel and those that have accepted it. Here's what I want you to know. We will be rejected in this life. Is that encouraging? See, Jesus reveals that he needed the word from the Father. He needed the words of the Father that the Father gave him. And if Jesus needs the words of the Father, then how much more do we need the words of the Father? Then he goes, he makes it clear that he gave those words to the disciples so that they would persevere and be preserved. If the apostles needed the words of Christ, how much more do we, the church? Peter himself said as much to Jesus after that controversial eat my flesh, drink my blood message. The one that makes everybody kind of run for the hills. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, what? Is he teaching that message again? Man, nobody's going to come back to church next week. He's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I hate this vampire sermon. (laughs) See, they didn't understand that this was what Jesus was trying to say. This is who I am. And they're grumbling. And he says, do you take offense to this message? And it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I preach messages that people didn't like before. I've taught messages where people walked away and didn't come back because they didn't like it. It's 
It's going to happen to you in your life the more you walk according to God's word. You're going to speak a message to somebody that they're not going to like, and they're going to walk away. So Jesus said to the 12 that were left, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Watch this. You have the words of life, of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what Jesus just prayed, that they have accepted who I am, that I am your son, and that you or I are the same. Lord, protect them that they wouldn't walk away from this when the message gets hard and the message gets difficult and we want to walk away. God, protect them from the evil one. Listen to me. Philosophies change. Ideologies come and go. Governments rise and fall. As a matter of fact, what you believe about the Bible will change throughout the course of your life. But there is one thing that remains. God's word remains the same. God's ways remain the same. And God's mission remains the same. So if we are going to remain the same, then we must remain faithful to his word, faithful in a hostile world that we remain faithful and remain in God's word. It is our only sure source of strength. As a matter of fact, even in our weakness or on top of our weaknesses or in light of or in spite of them, God's word strengthens us. Number two, the words of Christ guide us when the presence of Christ is hidden. Ever feel like God's not there with you? Ever feel like you don't see him? Ever feel like you're looking and you're looking but you can't see God, you don't see his presence, you don't see Jesus in this thing, whatever this thing is? Notice what Jesus is praying and saying in this prayer. He says this in verse 11, I am coming to you, Father, and they're staying here. I'm coming to you, but they're staying here. I don't know if you grasp the gravity and even maybe the pain of that prayer, but let me just make it real for you parents in here, maybe some of you kids. You ever taken your child or your growing up child and dropped them off and left them somewhere? Some of you can't even do it for a, a few hours because we're afraid. But as they get older, the dropping off lasts a little longer. I remember when I was 16 years old and I had uh, auditioned for and made it into a program. It's called the Governor's Honors Program and I was gonna go do this for a whole summer and, and sing and that's my thing. I was a, a vocal guy and so I went to Valdosta State University. Talk about hot in the summer, my gracious. That is like 30 kinds of hell down there. It's, it's like really hot. And so there's Valdosta State University in the middle of the summer and I'm 16 years old. And my parents took me down there, and I remember them getting me settled in a dorm room, and then they, they dropped me off at this roundabout, and I can just remember us going back out to the car, and, and my mom getting in the car, and, and then them driving off, and, and everybody crying. 16 years old, six weeks by himself. And I can only imagine in the cars, like, oh, God, we're leaving him here. Protect him. Help him to do what he knows is right. For the most part, I did. Now, I didn't know how to wash a lot of uh, clothes, so when my sheets, I didn't even think about washing those after six weeks, so when they, my parents picked me up, there was like an outline of my body, like a dead person on my sheets of dirt. So, um, 
hey, I don't know, if you're 16 and you know how to wash your sheets, good for you. At that point, I, maybe I did, I just didn't care to do it so much. Just one of those things. But they're not going to see me physically anymore. That's what Jesus is saying. God, I'm dropping them off. Protect them. God, I'm dropping off my son for the first time. I remember we dropped Caleb off in Nashville. And I'm sure it'll happen with each child. I'm dropping them off. You know what you're praying while you're driving away through tears? God, protect them. Jesus was saying, God, protect them. They're not going to see me anymore. So I'm praying for them to remain in me and remain in my word, even when my presence is hidden from them. This was ushering in a new era of trusting God's words, abiding in God's words, even when we don't see him physically teaching us that God is there, that we walk by faith and we're not walking by sight. How? We spend time with God through his word, being guided by his word. We internalize his word so it is with us at all times. We hide his word in our hearts so it quickly comes to our lips when we need it. We confess God's word when no other words seem to suffice in the circumstance that we're in. We ask God to search our lives and to turn on the searchlight of his word into our hearts to make sure there's no area of my life or my heart or my mind that's not surrendered to the word of God. Let God's word truly be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And that is how the words of Christ guide us when the presence of Christ is hidden from us. You may not always sense and know and feel God's presence, but what you can always know and have and confess is God's word. The third and final one I'll look at a little bit more is the world's resistance is often a sign we are closer to the mission of the word. Resistance isn't the sign when it comes to the gospel that we should give up. Resistance is a sign typically that we're closer to the mission of the word, that the darkest part of the night comes just before what? The dawn. That the light is about to break through and the closer we get to fulfilling the mission of God's word in our lives, the greater the resistance from the enemy of our lives. Jesus is praying for us that when we face resistance, and we will, that we won't quit, that we won't run, that we won't give up, and more importantly, that we won't change sides. See, oftentimes we think about this prayer like protect us from the evil one, which means protect us from harm in this life. And yes, that's part of it. But what Jesus is really asking and really praying is that even when harm does come to their life, they will not turn and walk away from you. Even when I don't understand what's going on, they won't turn and walk away from you. Protect them from the evil one. Watch what Jesus says in verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The world has hated them. That's, that's what he's saying. But this isn't a new message. A few chapters before, he was already teaching this to them. Jesus already taught this lesson. John 15, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. There's the good news. It's not just they'll persecute you, but if they obeyed me, they'll obey you too. So preach the gospel and don't be afraid. 
in a world that so quickly becomes hostile towards one another about all kinds of things, like I said earlier, even the most petty of things, I find it hard to believe that we don't accept the reality of the gospel that we will be rejected and hated because of it. Like, why is it so hard for us to grasp that everybody's not going to like the message of the gospel? Christ sees something that he wants his disciples then and he wants us to see now to recognize if we believe what he says and do what he commands, we will be hated. And the enemy will use that hatred to do what? To try to shake us. No greater early representation of that than what happened to Peter. That he was hated. Hey, hey, aren't you one of those guys? He knew if he admitted that, that he could end up in the same place that Jesus was. They hated what Jesus stood for. And if you stood with him, they hated you too. And it shook Peter to the core. I don't, I don't know him. Lord, I pray for them. What did Jesus just pray for them? Lord, I'm leaving them. I'm not going to be with them. I pray that they won't reject me. I don't know him. I don't know him. Peter's denial is one of the first of many. But the enemy has done this and will always do this to try to shake us by raising hostility and hatred and rejection towards us and towards the gospel message so that we will give up. It's happened with almost every missional movement to the nations that I've ever read about, and I'm reading about a ton of them right now. They go into the darkest places at the expense of their lives. This is why so many disciples and missionaries, particular early on in the church, ended up martyred for the sake of Christ. Let me just read one in particular that I read this week. The story of Adoniram and Ann Judson, like the first North American couple, the late 1800s that went on the mission field. But before they were a couple, Adoniram had to ask for Anne's hand in marriage. Dads, I want you to listen up. See if this would be something you'd want to hear from your daughter's future husband. I now have to ask whether you could consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life whether you could consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and died for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Wow. So, Dad, what do you say to that? Listen, I get it. We all want to be safe. And we all want to be liked. Nobody likes to be disliked or rejected or hated. So we spend most of our lives trying not to be. Therefore, what happens is we typically avoid things that will get us disliked, even the gospel. And what happens in a world where we have distilled our identities down to how many likes we get, could it be that pleasing people has taken precedence, place, priority, and primacy over pleasing God? 
Maybe we're trying so hard to be liked that we've forgotten that the Bible tells us that we're not supposed to be liked, but we're supposed to be light into darkness. The goal is to be liked, not liked. What does light do? It offends the darkness. We're not to fear the darkness. We are to dispel the darkness. And that's what light does. That's what Jesus was trying to teach us and pray for us. What he was passionately praying for us. That we would be in the world, but not of the world. This is an offensive gospel that Jesus taught not a defensive gospel that we have somehow accepted. In but not of means we don't belong to the world, we belong to Jesus. And watch this because there's a small nuance here that I think we can oftentimes miss. In but not of is not the destination. In but not of is the starting point for disciples. It is the base camp from which we're being sent out into this world. It's the base camp for which we're about to climb the Mount Everest of our spiritual life. And yes, there's going to be difficulties and there's going to be danger and there could be death, but we could get to the top and it'd be an amazing ultimate experience. But it is the base camp of being in but not of that we are sent out into the world. We're not of this world. And God's word sanctifies us and sends us, sanctifies us from evil and sends us out into the world. So we're not of this world, but we are to be offensive to this world. And I'm not saying purposely being a jerk. That's not what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, Pastor Brent said, just go out there and be a real big jerk today. No, 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 no. Here's what I'm saying. And here's what we have a hard time accepting. Because our lives are built on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our lives, he is known as the rock of offense. Darkness is offended by light. Lies are offended by the truth. The presence of Christ walks in a room and the religious folks just feel judged. But not the sinners. They feel welcomed. They feel like his friends. Have you ever walked into a room and without even saying a word, somebody says, why are you judging me? It's like maybe you haven't judged anything, but it's the presence of Christ that has judged the darkness in this particular situation. But I want you to see that it's not the sinners that feel judged by the presence of Christ. It's the religious that feel judged by the presence of Christ. Why? Because Jesus judges the intentions of our hearts, not just the actions of our hands. Oh, it can look really good, but Jesus walks in a room and he uncovers what looks good to see what's really underneath. See, the world already proved that it was offended by Jesus so much so that it crucified him. So how did Jesus pray that we would resist the devil? Watch this. How do we remain in Christ? How do we stay faithful to the mission of being sent into the world? Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's the primary strategy of the devil, right? Is to get you to believe lies, to deceive us. He is primarily a deceiver and a liar. John says that in John chapter 8, I believe it is, verse 44, that he is a liar. When he speaks, he speaks his native tongue, which is lying because he is a liar and a father of the lie. He's the father of lies. 
So the strategy of the devil is to bring about temptation and evil in our lives through deceiving us to put thoughts into your minds or feelings into your soul that are false. To believe things that aren't true about yourself. To believe things that aren't true about people made in the image of God that you love. And to believe things that aren't true about the God who sent his only son to take your place. To believe things about anything and everything, about what's going to make us happy, about what's going to satisfy us, what's going to give us security and peace and safety. But particularly, he lies about relationships because that's what Jesus came to destroy was the hostility in our relationships. So what does the enemy do? He lies and tries to interject that hostility back into our relationships. And I believe particularly in those in the family of God. He wants to create hostility. Because Jesus came to kill it. Jesus says to the Father, protect them. I'm dropping them off. I'm leaving them here. But protect them by sanctifying them in the truth. So sanctify means to help them be holy and to conquer temptation, which is what Jesus did exactly in the wilderness. He conquered temptation. He was sanctified. He was holy. He lived a holy life. And he said, how are we going to be holy as he is holy? We're going to do that by living according to his word, by truth. And the truth that is found in the word of God, not just vague truth, not just some old truth, but the truth of God's word, meaning the promises of God that he's made to us through his word, the facts about who we are, the facts about who he is, according to his word. So by your word, what is that? Well, that is the antidote to every falsehood. By his word. This is true. That's not. By his word, this is going to happen. That's not. By his word, this is how it's all going to end up. That's not how it's going to end up. None of the falsehood and lies other than truth can be heard through God's word. So if lying is the normal move of the evil one by which he tempts and destroys us, then there's only one remedy and there's only one thing that we can turn to that dispels those lies, and it's the truth of God's word. That's how we overcome the hostility of this world, through God's word. Jesus does not want his followers to be of the world. He says that he is himself not of the world, and his disciples are not of the world. So he wants us to be in, but not of. But notice Jesus, again, I'll say this, this is not the ending point. This is not the destination of these verses. It is the starting place. It's where we start from, not get to. It's not the holy destination. It's to be over here huddled up for God and waiting for Jesus to come back. Lord, protect us from evil, and we're going to stay in our bubble until you get there. No, that's not the destination. The destination is, I'm not of the world. That's the starting point, but I am sent into the world. It's not where things are moving toward, but where they're moving from. He wants us to be on the offense, expanding the kingdom of God and offensive to the kingdom of darkness. Enter verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then don't miss the surprising prayer of verse 15, just a few verses back. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is not asking his father for his disciples to be taken out of the world, but he's praying for them as they're sent into the world. He begins with the being not of the world, prays for them to be sent into the world. So maybe a better way in light of John 17 to revise this popular phrase, in but not of, is actually not of, but sent into. I'm not of this world, but I am sent into this world. 
The beginning place is being not of the world, and the movement is toward being sent into the world on mission for Christ. The accent falls on being sent with a mission to the world, not being mainly on mission to disassociate from this world, but to take the light of the gospel into the world. Too many people approach the gospel as a way to disassociate and demonize the world, and what Jesus is saying is, yes, you're going to engage culture. Yes, you're not going to hide from it, but you're going to move into it. Get into the the idea of moving into the darkness. God's people are saying, I want to hide. It's saying, where's the darkest place I could go? And I'm going to go there because that's where the light will dispel darkness the most. Where's the darkest place of the city I can go? What's the darkest thing in our past that we don't want to deal with? What's the darkest thing that we're, we're facing in our culture today? Well, then let's talk about it. Let's shine the light of the gospel onto it. Let's be sent into it and bring light into the darkness of this world. Jesus' assumption in John 17 is that those who have embraced him and identified with him are indeed not of this world. So we count whatever's of this world as, as fleeting and passing, like Paul says. All of this is rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing you, Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord. And now he sends us out, and we're sent into the world on mission for the sake of the gospel to advance the kingdom of God through making disciples. Jesus' true followers have not only been crucified to the world, but have been also raised to a new life and sent back into the world to free others. We've been rescued from the darkness and given the light not merely to flee the darkness, we flee temptation, not the darkness, but to guide our steps as we go back into the darkness to rescue others. I'm not fleeing the darkness. I'm shining light into the darkness. So let's revise the phrase, as I said, in but not of. Christians are not of this world, but sin into. Not of, but sin into. And what happens when we're sent into the world and not of the world is rejection and hostility are going to come, but they do not have to spiritually derail us from the mission God has for us. As a matter of fact and a matter of faith, we should expect rejection and hostility in this world. Remember, the greater the resistance is a sign that we're getting closer to the mission that God has for us in his word. But here's the truth, Jesus has already won the victory. And again, I'll say it again, the enemy can only win in our lives if resistance in this life causes us to back down, give in, grow bitter, or change sides. Too many times I've had in my mind that I would back down. Maybe how many times I actually have backed down. Been quiet. Let's stop, let's, stop, let's stop doing that. There's so much resistance here. Man, there's so much resistance. Maybe we, maybe we just tr try another path. But I want you to know that the Christian is called not to the path of least resistance. The Christian is called to the path of the greatest resistance. And it's the resistance of darkness against the kingdom of light. But it's a resistance that Jesus has already walked with and through and conquered. And so now as following in his footsteps, as those who are not of the world but sent into, we follow in his footsteps, even with the greatest of resistance. We don't quit. We don't back down. We don't revise the message. We continue to preach the gospel. And we never change sides. 
<laughs> you ever had that friend that was never really a fan of any one particular team except the one that won all the time? And then when they lost, they just changed. There's a lot of names for that that I don't even want to use right now. Bandwagon is one. But the truth of the matter is, is when you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, when he has prayed for you that he was going to leave you and he's going to drop you off, but he was praying that you would be protected from the evil one. He knew that you would suffer rejection. He knew that you would suffer difficulty, possibly harm, or in the case of even Adoniram Judson, his wife died on the mission field. She was buried in Burma. That even through all of that, the husband said, well, I'm not switching teams. And he himself died faithful to the gospel. Listen to me, there are things in this life, and I'm not just talking about opposition from people. As a church, we faced much opposition from people, but I'm telling you the resistance that we felt is only because we're getting closer to the mission and the promise of God's word as his church. I believe this place is gonna be full of people that don't look like one another, but are all drawn together because of their same love for Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus that binds us together as the family of God and the same team. People that are committed not to switching teams when it gets difficult or it gets hard or somebody says that message offended them. It doesn't matter. All we know is this is what God has called us to do and we're gonna keep pressing on towards the goal that's in Christ Jesus and let him do the work in the church as he builds the church. Some of you may be tempted to run, to walk, to change teams, so to speak. And there's all kinds of reasons. I just did a funeral this weekend of, I say, a young man that lost his wife to cancer. You know, what the enemy would want is to take something like that and cause this family to switch teams. I don't understand, God, why does she have to die? I don't believe this anymore. And that's what Jesus is praying we be protected from, not from all the things that are gonna happen in a fallen world that we can't explain all the time, like disease and illness and death. We're all gonna meet death at some point in time, but it's in the face of that death. It's in the face of the calamity. It's in the face of the illnesses. It's in the face of the hatred. It's in the face of the difficulty that we ourselves are able to go, I am not changing my allegiance to Christ. I'm not. So wherever you're facing today, whatever difficulty, maybe it's a friend that walked away. Maybe it's a loved one that you lost. Maybe it's a, a dysfunctional situation that you're in, a circumstance that you've been fighting for years, and it's tempted you to say, you know what? I'm walking away. I'm telling you that hostility that the enemy has towards you is trying to get you to give up. And what Jesus wants you to know is that you're in the world, but you're not of it. You're sent into it. And he wants to use your life for his glory and for your good. Don't give up. Don't give in. Trust God with your life today, church. He's doing something great in this place, and he wants to do something great through you. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from, and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.